0: Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It's the amazing Rico Bronia Podcast with your host, Evan Roberts.
1: Hi, right, everybody. Welcome to the Rico. The Mets have gotten swept by the Philadelphia Phillies in a four-game series. And I'm not actually angry about that. I'm angry about other things. But you can listen to me and Tiki, 2 o'clock on the fan, to hear about that. As far as this team is concerned, since they made the sell-off decision that they made a few months ago, they had that awful road trip right after the shock of the trades. Remember, they got swept by can- or lost two out of three. To Kansas City. I don't even remember. But they got swept by Baltimore. And it felt as if maybe the shock of what the Mets decided to do kind of affected them on that road trip. Once they came back from it, really over the last two months, the Mets have played halfway decent baseball. They have played 13 series coming into this one against the Phillies. They won six of those series, they lost six of those series, and they split a two-game series with the Nationals. So this has basically been kind of like this mediocre win a series, lose a series, win a series. Nothing's too great. Nothing's too bad. Obviously, none of it meant anything in the standings. Now they go to Philadelphia and get swept. And really, it's the first time since that Baltimore series where I don't want to say the Mets embarrassed themselves because, A, I don't think people care that much. And B, really, over the first three games of this series, the Mets showed a lot of fight. They did. I mean, you go back to the opener of this series on Thursday, and again, a game probably very few people were paying attention to. Giants were playing Thursday night. The Mets game got dumped off of Fox locally. It ended up on My9. So hopefully hopefully you heard that update prior to the Thursday game, because we ended the RICO last week, or a few days ago, with the question of, wait a second, are the Mets going to be blacked out? No. They were on My9. But... In that game, the Mets fought back from multiple deficits. Deficits. They were down 2-0 early. They come back. They tie the game in the second inning. They're down in the sixth. Mark Vientos continued his power surge, hit a home run. And then immediately, Jeff Brigham, another guy who none of us ever want to look at ever again, gives up that absolute pee shot to Nicholas Castellanos. So the Mets don't fight. Like, it's not as if they got rolled over in this series. And in game one of this series, they had so many opportunities late after Castellanos hit that home run off Bringham to come back, tie or win the game, and maybe cause a, a tiny bit of worry to the Philly fan who is now dancing their way to the first wild card spot. But it was very typical. David Peterson gave us the reason why nobody should trust David Peterson in the rotation next year, why he should not even be considered like a viable rotation piece in 2024. He begins the game by walking multiple guys. He gives up that home run to Alec Bohm. It was just a very typically up and down mediocre performance by David Peterson. And that's who he is. That's just the reality. I, we've had two months to sit back and watch him every five days. And while you look for progress, And maybe you try to talk yourself into, oh, he's a lefty and he's developing late. He's the same guy, which is why it's been how many starts? It's been two months. I stand by the same thing I said to you, Pete Hoffman, on July 25th, which is keep him in the bullpen. Let's see what he's got there, because I think that's his role in the future. It's certainly not going to be in this rotation, and he's done nothing over the last two months to change
2: anybody's opinion, I don't think. No, it hasn't. And again, like I, I don't even know if I can trust him in the bullpen. That's the problem. And it sucks to say that because, you know, you want to have some sort of, you know, you want to be able to develop somebody and there's like no pitching prospects. There's no pitching uh, talent in our, in, our, in our minor league system right now, which sucks. It really, it's not there yet. Well, what's
1: frustrating is that I get that after the trades, you kind of needed to fill out this rotation. And the Mets basically looked at these last two months as that final audition for David Peterson, final audition even for Tyler McGill. And so I I get that perspective. But the other side of it was this also could have been a two-month audition to see what this guy has out of the bullpen. Because to your point, I don't think any of us feel good about him going into opening day 2024 as a lefty piece out of the pen. Like It's just a theory. It's nothing we've ever seen on a consistent basis. So It's frustrating that over these last two months, as the Mets have lost games at times because of their bullpen, you could certainly argue they lost game one of this series because of their bullpen. Jeff Brigham comes into a game and he immediately gives up a home run to Nicholas Castellanos. It's a big part of why they lost. So it would have been nice for the last few months to at least have had a look at David Peterson at the likelier role he's going to have on this team. Now, the end of this game was frustrating. I mentioned they had a golden opportunity in the eighth against Craig Kimbrell. It never gets old if you can rally and beat Craig Kimbrell. Never. That is a guy, every time he does that little lean-over thing with his arm dangling, I just want to rip that elbow off. And I know that sounds violent and wrong. Obviously, I don't want to ruin his career or anything like that. It just bothers me as it's dangling there. Ah, It pisses me off. And they had second
2: and third one out. He looks like a a vulture. I don't know why. That reminds (laughs) me of a very vulture-like type of thing.
1: Yeah, I don't know what the hell it is. I mean, we're so used to it because we've watched it for a decade. But to his credit, he got out of it. Second and third, one out. Mets down by a run in the eighth. Francisco Alvarez pops up in the infield. Brett Beatty ends up striking out. They had another shot in the ninth inning with Brandon Nimmo, had that one-out double. Ronnie Mauricio flies out. And poor Pete. Pete is, he's had a very streaky season. And, you know, we're a week away from this season ending, so we have an idea of where these numbers are going to look or what these numbers are going to look like. But right now, he's in one of those bad streaks. He's in one of those bad streaks when he comes up. The question I have is, what kind of pitch is he going to strike out on? That's the only question I have. And he ended the game by striking out. So really, the long and short out of game one was mediocrity out of David Peterson. Mark Vientos hits another home run. They show a little bit of fight. They lose to the Philadelphia Phillies. Friday night's game, which was on Apple TV, boy, they, they were testing us this week. <laughs> they go from, where's the game on Thursday? Oh, wait, it's my nine. now you got to fire up the dopey Apple TV and watch the Mets play the Phillies on Friday night. I thought, I give him a compliment. It was as good as Tyler McGill has thrown the baseball. I don't say it's good all year. It was one of his better starts of the year without, you know, going through each Box score, I almost feel irresponsible saying, ah, this is his best start of the year. It probably wasn't, but it was one of his better starts of the year because he didn't have to nurse his way out of rallies every inning, which tends to be the problem for him. Like, he was efficient. He didn't allow anything over the first five innings. Uh, He was very, very solid. And then it all comes crashing down in the sixth inning. He gives up that cheap infield hit to Alec Bohm. There's two outs. There's two on. He's right there with a chance to get through this inning. Oh, somebody's calling me. Hold on. Oh, my son's calling me. Should I uh, answer that? No, I'm just kidding. My wife's going to answer that. Did you hear that ring, by the way, or was that just in my earphone, Pete? Nobody heard it? No. My apologies. I should have ignored that. Uh, I use a computer that my wife like has like the login for, so anyone who calls her, it
2: actually calls me whenever I'm doing a podcast. So my apologies. Is it like a Facebook, like Facebook Messenger type of thing? Or like, um...
1: No, it's uh, Apple, Apple iCloud thingy. Oh, yeah, iChat. Apple iCloud. Okay. So like if you call her phone, it would also go to your tablet. This happens to me too. Like if someone calls my phone, it goes to my tablet. So yeah, I apologize. I apologize. What was I saying now? Uh, Tyler McGill. He's <laughs> one out of way. From getting through the sixth inning and giving you this, like, perfect, solid six-inning performance. And JT Riamuto, and this was a theme all weekend. How many freaking times did JT Riamuto come up with a big two-out or one-out hit? And he did it on Friday. It's the three-run bomb. They're down three to two. They're down four to two. And McGill, overall, if you look past, and it's very tough to do this. If you look past the Real Muto three-run home run, he was a pitch away from giving you that complete performance. And JT had a great weekend, and Tyler McGill made a bad pitch. And so a Met 2-0 lead, and McGill giving you six scoreless, handing the ball to the bullpen, all gets thrown in the gutter because JT Real Muto is better than him. And look, the Mets again, they showed fight. This is the thing about the first two games of this series. They go down 4-2, to and here's our boy Brett Beatty. That was a big moment for Brett Beatty, who needs to show us something, and he's shown us a little bit over the last week since he's come back from the groin injury. He's hit, and this was his most impressive moment because it's still Craig Kimbrell. You're still down in the ninth inning. You're still on the road in front of 35,000 people. As meaningless as this game may be for the Mets, it ain't meaningless for Brett Beatty. And so his game-tying home run in the ninth inning was, it was something, you know, nothing to sneeze at. It's a very good sign for Brett. Unfortunately, we're at this point now with a week to go in the season, but there's really nothing that can happen that's going to change how we feel about what we saw this season. And I'm not talking about overall. We all know this team sucked this year. I'm talking about, like, the individual. Like, I don't know if there's anything Brett Beatty can do in a week That's going to make you, Pete, say, Hey, that's the everyday third baseman in 2024. I mean, he had a terrible season. So a week's not necessarily going to change that. But I did think that home run on Friday was a big positive for Brett Bate.
2: Well, the hope is, and I know I'm being a douche here, but like the hope is, is that maybe Batey's doing enough that other teams will be like, you know what? I trade for him. And we can. that's what that no because you got to think about the big picture is we're going to have a log jam right now we're going to have a log jam because i know there's gonna be moves in the off season but mauricio is making a case to be an everyday player and that means that there's somebody that's going to either be a bench or go back to the minors next well
1: year. Uh, we're going to spend more time on this in a little bit and we'll also get to the athletic article as long as well as the rest of the series but i think ronnie mauricio is an everyday player next year the question is where that is going to be the million-dollar question, and we'll get into it, because I think he's looked good at third base. I think he's looked good at second base. Uh, we haven't seen him in the outfield, so we can't judge him on that. But I'm, I'm not ready necessarily to look at Beatty and just say, that's trade bait. What I am ready to say is he had a bad year this year. This was a big opportunity for him, and he mostly failed. Now, he's been hitting a lot better over the last week or so, and that's nice, but it's certainly not enough to eradicate All the bad we've seen from him at the plate. As far as how they lost this game, the last two innings, in a lot of ways, said everything about this season. Jeff McNeil fouls a ball off his nuts. He literally does it. I'm sure, even if you don't watch these games, you have seen the clip of Jeff McNeil literally fouling a ball off of his acorns. I mean, it literally happened. The squirrel right there. And the poor guy's in pain. But here's the best part that no one's going to talk about. But we'll talk about it on the Rico. This poor son of a bitch fouls the ball off his nuts. It's 0-2 in the 10th inning. Yeah, 10th inning. And what does he do? He draws a walk. How about that? And then you have the dopey Apple TV announcers saying, no balls, two strikes. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. Got it? He's got no balls. No, 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 no. That guy does have balls. Because despite fouling the ball off said balls, what did he do? He put that bat together. And then, of course, Pete Alonso struck out with the bases loaded. <laughs> Which is, you yeah. I don't want to pick on our boy Pete, but yeah, it's been a struggle. What can you say? It's just another punch to the ball. <laughs> it really was. Because you <laughs> knew, okay, this game's over. Like, what, what are we doing here? And then in the bottom of the 10th inning, they walk Bryce Harper. They give up a bloop single to Alec Baum. It was very quick and painless. Let's get the hell out of here. So they lose on Thursday, a game they come back in and lose a tough one, blow opportunities late. They lose on Friday when Tyler McGill makes one bad pitch in the 6th inning. They get a dramatic comeback, and then they lose the ball. I lose the ball. (laughs) Balls are on my mind. What can I say? They lose the game when a ball's hit off nuts. A guy strikes out, and there's a little dinky blooper. I mean, I I have said this a lot over the last week, but they had three games. Those two games we just described and the game they lost in Miami, if they were in a pennant race, we'd be in depression. Like Those are just
0: awful, awful
1: losses. You almost have to remind yourself it's great that they suck. It's great that these games don't matter, right?
2: I mean, Evan, right now, I don't know if I'd be able to live another day if I had to deal with a Mets pennant race and them losing this way and then watching the Jets. Uh, dude, I don't know. If no, he... I would
1: just kill all <laughs> of us. I mean, it's the bottom line. <laughs> uh, as far as Saturday's games is concerned, I'm stunned they played on Saturday and Sunday. I looked at the weather going into the weekend, and I assume Philly, New York, it's close. And I thought to myself, well, there'll be no baseball. And the Mets aren't playing. The Yankees aren't playing. And stunningly, the Yankees got one of their games in Sunday, didn't on Saturday, and the Mets got both of the games in. Like, I, I couldn't believe it. I sat down DVR style on Saturday and said, there's not going to be anything here. And it was an entire game. The only thing I'll give you from this game is a couple of things. Number one, Jose Quintana was mediocre, and it was really one of the rare times he was. because Quintana. And and Quintana's had such a weird year, man, because he wasn't pitching when they needed him the most. So his second half, in which he's taken the ball every five, six days, which is great, and he's made 12 starts, and he's been sturdy as all hell, it it hasn't mattered the way it would have mattered if he took the baseball in the first half of the year. But Quintana was bad. One of the rare times we've seen that. And early in this game, Ronnie Mauricio showing us the speed. He steals a run in the second inning. I forget who got the base hit. I apologize. Someone got an RBI single, and Ronnie Mauricio took advantage of that uh, little kind of hesitation in the outfield and was able to score from first. And it was so encouraging to see because that's one of the aspects of Ronnie Mauricio, one of the aspects of his game that's like, wow. Okay. And by the way, here was the play. Brett Beatty hit a ground ball to shortstop. Trey Turner couldn't come up with it. DJ Stewart scored. Mauricio kept running and scored all the way from first. And basically stole a run. That was fun. That was fun. Because as I'm watching him dart around the bases and score, I'm thinking of next year. And I'm thinking of, wow, wouldn't it be nice to have that kind of power, switch it, power, and speed in the middle of this lineup. And then the other problem was the Mets are getting their ass kicked. They're down six to two games over. They come back. It's a game. And then Reed Garrett, another guy, no one ever wants to see him again, gives up a two-out RBI single to JT Realmuto right after the Mets rally. Mets lose 7-5. Again, this is a pennant race, just infuriating stuff. But a couple of minutes on Jose Quintana. So Jose Quintana has made 12 starts. And if you look at the 12 starts he's made in the second half of this year, he is the absolute model of consistency. Model of consistency. He is a six-inning, two-run guy every five days. And I'll prove it to you. Very quickly, here is 12 starts. Five innings, two runs. Six innings, two runs. Six and two-thirds, three runs. Six innings, two runs. Six innings, one run. Six innings, two runs. Here's the dud. Five and a third, five runs. That was against the Braves. We all know something weird's going on with them. Six innings, no runs. Seven innings, one run. Five innings, two runs. Six and two thirds, two runs. And then obviously the dud against the Phillies. Six innings, five runs. That is almost a remarkable consistency that Quintana's had. By the way, you add all that up. It's a 3.39 ERA. He does not have a good win-loss record. That has a lot to do with the Met offense and the Met bullpen. But I think it's going to be forgotten because of when it's happened in the season, but that is some consistency. That's a consistency that no one else other than Senga was even close to giving the Mets. Verlander wasn't doing that. Scherzer wasn't doing that. And it's your kind of daily Rico reminder that, the more you think about it, the Quintana injury may have been the most may have been the most serious death blow to the Mets season than we realize. Obviously, we know about Diaz and Verlander missing the first month and Marte being a shell of his former self. Alon, like, we get it. But the Quintana one, especially if he was doing that in the first half of the year, I mean, you heard the whole thing. That is a model of consistency. All right, let's get through this series so we can talk about real stuff. As far as the fourth game is concerned, they moved it back five hours. Great. Francisco Lindor's running in and went out in the fifth inning, down 4-0. That was annoying. Ronnie Mauricio at a right-handed home run. First one, he said, at the Major League level. An absolute rip shot the sixth inning that sort of made the game interesting. And Jose Budo had his comeback to reality game. We spent a few minutes on Budo last time on the Rico. How unusual of a season he's had with his struggles at AAA compared to the starts that he's put together at the major league level in September. Well, he faced a really good offense and he got beaten up. I, my opinion on Budo is the same. He's in that swingman conversation for 2024. I don't think anything has changed in that regard. Mets lose game four. They get swept. It was perfect that it ended with Pete Alonzo making the final out because Pete's been a mess recently. He's been a mess. So the Mets get swept by the Philadelphia Phillies. It's obnoxious. It's annoying. But luckily, it doesn't matter. And we're a week away now from being completely put out of our misery. I try to remind myself that as much as it's going to be relieving to end this season, to just have it go away, I'm going to miss it. Like the one thing about baseball that certainly the NFL doesn't bring, you win a game, you get a week to be excited about it. You lose a game, you have a week to beat your head against the you know, the desk you're sitting at. Baseball is that everyday occurrence. It's a companion. So, a part of why it's so difficult for me, even if I wasn't doing the Rico, to just stop watching the Mets when they're having a bad year is you spend all of April, all of May, all of June, all of July. Like, it's tough to just say, okay, I'm done. <clears throat> I know some people do it. I have a tough time doing it. Now, we're going to be forced to do that in a week. And some of us will watch the playoffs and try to. Get excited about it. I will watch the playoffs, obviously. I love the MLB playoffs, but it's not our team. It's not our guys. It's not our frustration. And now our frustration is a week away from ending.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds.
1: All right, let's get to this athletic article because I got two opinions before we get into the details of this thing that I want to explain do not contradict each other. Number one, the Mets sucked this year, and I don't think we necessarily have to put it under the microscope every five days looking for something that may not be there. What I mean by that is there's been this sense over the last month, why this happen? You now what what happened in the locker room? Started with Steve Gelbs. Mike Puma wrote a piece about it a month ago. We have it with the athletic now. Like, well, what happened? Like, well, how'd this happen? It ain't that complicated how this happened. We've done pods about this for months. We'll do it during the offseason. They sucked this year for many, many reasons. They sucked this year because their closer got hurt in spring training. They sucked this year because their opening days or one of their opening day aces got injured on opening day and we didn't see him for a month. They sucked this year because one of their more consistent starters, Jose Quintana, did not make a start until it was too late. They sucked this year because Starling Marte was a shell of his former self. They sucked this year because some of the younger players that they were relying on did very little. Hello, Brett Beatty. They sucked this year because the guy that won the batting title last year did nothing for the first three and a half months of the year. They sucked this year because Billy Epler didn't do a good enough job building this bullpen behind Edwin Diaz. They sucked this year because all the swing starters that did so much better of a job last year failed this year. They sucked this year because Max Scherzer is a relic. Now, I I just gave you 15 reasons. We can give you more, but I don't think there always needs to be a study on why. So here's where I'm going to, some may think I contradict myself. With that said, I love the fact that the Athletic did a deep dive on this season. I love the fact that they went into that locker room and said, hey, let's try to find out more because it's not going to make me change why this team sucked. But again, when you watch a team every day, you want to know as much about that team as humanly possible. Like, you want to know what they were thinking about when they embarrassed themselves in Detroit. You want to know what they were thinking about as they were swooning in June. So I love the fact that Salmon and Britton wrote this article. Britton or Healy? I get the Tim's confused. I apologize. Whatever. I love the fact that they did that reporting for us as fans to learn more about the team we root for, but I know why they sucked. And it's funny to me how some of us are always looking for like, well, maybe they all hate each other. Maybe that's why the Mets were terrible. It ain't that complicated. Why the Mets were terrible. We all saw it. Now with that said, I'm going to tell you the most interesting things I took out of the athletic piece. And I advise any Mets fan to read it, read it in its entirety. It's a long piece. There's a lot of great reporting in there. And again, even if it doesn't change why you think the Mets suck, you're learning more about the team you love. That's why I love stuff like this. That's why I don't look at this and say, I'm not going to read. I don't care. I know why the Mets suck. No, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with, I want to learn more about my team. So Alonzo going in the Bucs office in the middle of June as he's slumping, and pleading with his manager, and almost apologized for being bad, was fascinating. Quote, this isn't who I am. Pete, I know, Showalter responded. You don't need to tell me this. <laughs> it feels like it reads like a novel. <laughs> Alonzo, quote, I guess it was more so for me, Alonzo explained, just showing that, listen, I'm working, I'm doing the best I can, and I feel bad for not playing well. Everyone has internal expectations, but for me personally, I pride myself on being as consistent as possible, and I wasn't that, especially doing all I did to come back early and do what I could to help, and I just failed. I was healthy. I was just failing way more than I was helping the team. Pete was a very, very big part of why this team failed in June. Now, based on that quote, he is still saying, hey, I was healthy. That wasn't the reason why I struggled. And, you know, it's funny. How do we know that it was the injury? And the reason I bring that up is we were talking and recapping this series against the Phillies The Pete's slumping right now. It could just be slumping. It could just be, hey, the guy missed a couple of weeks. He comes back. His timing is way off. Then he starts to press. And by the way, that sounds like a guy who's pressing. A guy going into the manager's office and essentially apologizing for being terrible, that to me sounds like a guy who's eventually going to start to press. So I thought that was, was interesting because Showalter put it in this piece to The Athletic. As Showalter would later recall, Alonzo looked like he wanted to apologize for not driving in every run and for not hitting every home run. And that sounds like a guy who was putting everything on his back and was failing with it. And look, that was an absolute huge part of their struggles in June when they went 7-19 and went from being in a legitimate pennant race to completely falling out of it. No question about it. The other thing, and I know this got a lot more attention, but let's dive into it, was the Tommy Pham stuff. So I'll read this part for you. Lindor had held himself accountable after every crushing loss during a prolonged slump of his own, answering every question from every reporter every day. Tommy Pham respected Lindor's accountability as a leader, how hard he worked, and never placed blame on elders. As The Athletic reported earlier in the month, the conversation started with Pham explaining that he wanted New York to roll out more than one batting practice group because he used that time to work on live reads in the outfield. Okay. So, fam said, I want more BP so I can work on what I'm doing in the outfield. With Lindor, fam felt comfortable sharing something that roamed in his mind after observing how often some players in the clubhouse played games like pool. Fam says he told Lindor, out of all the teams I played on, this is the least hardest working group of position players I ever played with. Now, we all read that. And there's two reactions. Number one, you want to attack Tommy Pham. Because that, that's what we do sometimes. You attack the messenger when you don't like the message. Now, we need to be fair about this and take a step back. Tommy Pham has been around Major League Baseball. He's been on a bunch of teams. I know everybody likes to cite the fight that he had or the slap in the face he had over fantasy football. But I don't believe Tommy Pham would just pull that kind of comment out of his ass. He genuinely felt As if the position players in this locker room was, quote, the least hardest working group of position players I ever played with. Now, because that's his opinion, doesn't mean it's true. Doesn't mean the Mets were a bunch of lazy bums. But when you have a season like this and you have so many guys underachieving, you read that comment and some of us will say, is that why we sucked? (laughs) Were guys not working hard? Now, this continues and it's important. Opinions varied on the subject. Perfam's recollection, the players at the restaurant, because he went out to dinner with Lindor, Alvarez, Eduardo Escobar, were three of the names of the guys that were there. And further explaining his comments later, uh, I'm sorry, the players at the restaurant seemed receptive to what he had to say, which I'm taking as the extra batting practice stuff. And further explaining his comments later, he added that he had a lot of respect for the work ethics of team leaders Francisco Lindor, Pete Alonso, and Brandon Nemo. Okay. Now, here's where your brain goes next. So Tommy Pham is saying, least hardest working clubhouse of position players I've ever seen. If you decided not to take A, choice A, which is bash Tommy Pham, and say he's got no credibility, he can go F himself, your second branch is, who's he talking about? He's not talking about Lindor. Clearly, he's saying this to Lindor, unless he's trying to send him a message. So now we get clarification that there's some lazy bums in the Met locker room, but it's not Lindor, it's not Alonzo, and it's not Nimmo. So naturally, we all start playing the checklist game, which is okay. Let's play this game. So it's not Lindor, it's not Alonzo, it's not Nimmo. It's not Eduardo Escobar. He was at lunch with him during this meeting. It's not Francisco Alvarez. We've heard how hard he works. And again, he too was hanging out with Tommy Pham. So it comes down to, all right, he thinks Jeff McNeil, Brett Beatty, and Starling Marte are a bunch of lazy, and Daniel Vogelback, a bunch of lazy bumps. Did you jump to that conclusion, Pete, when you heard
2: that? Uh, along with Mark Hanna as well. Don't forget about him. Mark Canna's yeah. got to be in the, the lump in that group. But yes, that's exactly – Jeff McNeil was numero uno on that list.
1: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> by the way, the next quote in the article was Jeff McNeil countering this by saying – Guys are super professional around here. We go about our business, and everybody comes ready to play and does what they need to do. I, you know why? I believe Tommy Pham. I believe that's a, an opinion he had. But it's also like, who is he to say what a guy is doing enough of? You know what I mean? Like, I, I think I work really hard at what I do. How can I judge? how hard other people work. Like I can only judge what I see. It doesn't mean I see everything. You know what I mean by that? Like I, I respect that that's his view of it, but we also can't take it as the gospel. And that's not my way of attacking him. I'm not attacking Tommy Pham again. Genuinely. He probably looked at some of the guys in that room and said, ah, they're playing too much pool. They're not working hard enough, but he also doesn't have his eyes on individuals at all times. Just like, I don't have my eyes on Pete all the time. I can't say, ah, Hoffman, he don't work hard. How the hell do I know what you're doing like 75% of your day? So I, I I respect his honesty, especially in this piece for even saying that, but we also have to realize that we can't take it as the gospel.
2: But here's the thing, Ev, and there was something glaring the entire season and you ran down the 150,000 reasons of why this team sucked. One of them you missed though was overall the fundamentals. Like the Mets seemed like they were not Sound on defense the entire season they just seemed like they were missing something they weren't locked in the way they were last year a little bit on offense too just making some bonehead you know plays and and running mistakes and et, cetera, et cetera, et cetera. but like that was a clear sign and you're gonna tell then you hear Tommy Pham say yeah the guys guys didn't work hard it goes well Eureka we figured it out you guys are lazy and you <laughs> literally. You literally did this to yourself. You could have gone out there, worked hard, and you chose not to.
1: Did Jeff McNeil fall off a cliff this year because he was lazy? I don't know. No, I'm not saying the answer is definitely no. What I'm saying with Fam is not that he's 100% wrong, because, again, none of us actually know. It's more we have to take a comment like that and just not treat it like, well, he said it, that must be it. It's interesting information. Maybe it is why Jeff McNeil fell off a cliff. Maybe it is why stalling Marte had such a difficult time coming back from injury. I don't know. But I think when a guy makes a comment like that, you got to take a deep breath on it. I thought Lindor's quote of, Hey man, thank you for teaching me how to work hard again, was a very weird quote. One part of me says, what the hell does that mean? You weren't working hard and you needed this guy to teach you how to work hard again? The other part of me says, that's Lindor just trying to be nice. Like, hey, Tommy, I had such a great time with you. Thank you for, insert compliment, I'll go with making me work hard again. very, very strange quote. I hope Lindor realized that that quote does not make him look even though Fam respected his work ethic. So again, if we're taking his comments to mean all that much, uh, he respected Francisco's work ethic. By the way, I didn't get to the comment that actually bothered me the most. The FAM one got the most attention. It's not the comment that bothered me the most. I'm going to tell you the comment that bothered me the most. Are you ready? Ready for this one? (laughs) Even before Edwin Diaz's injury, the Met front office had drawn criticism for its approach to bullpen depth. At one point, the group sought optionable relievers over experience, which we talked a lot about, but due to either injury, (coughs) excuse me, But due to either injury or poor performance, no one from this second tier was able to stick around. The Mets had already re-signed Adam Adovino. They had David Robertson. So even without Diaz, they believed they would have a few capable options. Here's where it gets bad. And they held out hope of Diaz one day returning in September to propel a postseason surge. Throughout the season's first couple of months, Adam Adovino would often tell David Robertson, quote, Let's just hang in there, and the trumpets are going to play, and everything will be all right. What? Hold on a second. Nobody actually believed that Edwin Diaz was going to come back. No one believed that. If he did come back, it would have been an added bonus. And you're telling me that in the midst of this season, throughout the season's first couple of months, so that sounds like through April, May, and June, Adam Adovino would tell David Robertson, who was great, by the way, until he got traded to the Marlins. Hey, guys, we just hang in there because the trumpets are going to play and it's going to save us? Like, first of all, as an athlete, are you supposed to even think that way? Are you supposed to think about the other athlete that's going to come back on the white horse to save you? I'll I tell you, Pete. That comment bothers me a hundred times more than Tommy Pham deciding who works hard and doesn't work hard.
2: It just seems that this team was delusional slash hungover from last year that they thought that this was going to be an easy ride to the playoffs. And I got to be honest, I was (laughs) one of the first people to say that too. I thought that we walked into the season going like a guaranteed playoff spot. (laughs) Not going to be division. But we're going to make it to the playoffs. It's going to be easy. Even with Edward Diaz out, we're going to find a way. And it just it like punched us right in the face. You, you nailed it, by the way. I
1: think you summed up my biggest takeaway from this piece was, in general, the Mets thought this would be easy. In general, they thought we'll be fine. Because this piece really starts in Detroit where the Mets are like, oh, man, why are we struggling? Oh, what's going on? And you could almost tell, like, there's this sense, at least presented in this piece, a sense of we'll be fine. What's happening? Like, we're really good. What's going on? And they almost thought it would be that easy. And obviously, it wasn't. It was not easy. The other thing that's pushed in this is the idea that a lot of the mental mistakes, the Mets' poor play, and the high amount of rule violations in the early weeks were because of the rule changes and because of the fact that the locker room was never together in spring training because of the World Baseball Classic. Only the Astros and the Cardinals sent more players to the WBC. So having this roster in a world in which there were new rules and there were new rules was not ideal. Unnamed Met. The World Baseball Classic really hurt us. (laughs) Buck was really good last year with getting guys to buy into philosophies and culture and carrying that into the season. He tried to do it in the last week of spring training, but I didn't feel like we were in sync. So the excuse of guys were away for the WBC. And that's an unnamed Met. Here's an on-the-record Met, Brandon Nimmo, calling it BS. Quote, as for as the way spring training went, We had a bunch of professionals who understood how to play the game and what to do. Maybe it took a little bit of time, but I don't think you can argue that because we went 7-3 and on that early West Coast trip. April was not an issue. And I, I, I was thinking the same thing. Anytime I hear WBC, guys not being around, the rule changes, the Diaz injury we get. We all know how important Edwin Diaz was to this team last year and how important he would have been to this team this year in an alternate universe that has Edwin Diaz in the Met bullpen. Yeah, they're better. <laughs> I think we all know that. But the idea that the pitch clock, the amount of times you could throw over to first base, the crackdown on sticky stuff, like all of that was somehow the demise of the Mets it is tough to kind of compute that when they got off to a good start. The Mets looked like a good team in April. I remember being so giddy with you, Pete, during that West Coast trip. And even when they lost the final two games to the Giants, there was a sense of, that's ah, okay. It's all right. Still seven and three. Didn't end the way we wanted to, but don't worry. Things are good. And then after that, the season really spiraled. So those were my biggest takeaways from this. I, again, I like learning about our favorite team. I like hearing behind-the-scenes thoughts and details. But this is not 1992. As much as it feels that way because of the money and the expectations, I don't think we're going to find what maybe some are looking for, which is there was a fight right after that Tiger series, and this guy hates that guy, and this guy slept with his girlfriend. I don't think it's there. Because if it was there, it would have already been dug up. What is this locker room? This is a locker room that's probably normal. And I made this point on the air, and hear me out on this. If you had a bunch of really good reporters deciding to dig in on the Milwaukee Brewers clubhouse, don't you think you would find probably similar things? Yet the Brewers are going to win the NL Central. So no one's digging into the locker room. Nobody gives a rat's ass. When you lose, you're always looking to find something. And if there is something, it's always great to hear. Like, look, that Eno line, if that's the mindset a lot of Met players had or this organization had, that's a problem. I'll admit that. If you're walking around waiting for a savior, that's a problem. If the Jets are saying, look, Aaron Rodgers is coming back in December, we'll be okay that's delusional. And that's a problem. So the Mets suck this year. There's 150 reasons why we're going to have so many podcasts going through every freaking reason why this team was terrible. Oh, I can't wait for that,
2: Pete. I'm so excited. Evan, the one thing I will say, though, and I just, just listen to, read, you know, hearing you talk about the article and just in general, there is a, a major disconnect. And divide in the locker room from and some things that we had weren't discussed, like the whole McNeil and Lindor Car thing, like it's stupid, it really is, but I just think that these people are are and I got to be honest, they're human beings they're 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 not tight I think that they I don't think they're a very tight team, I really don't I think there's some groups that are are tighter than others, but as a team, they're not gelling and that's something that 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 showed you had the pitching staff, the elite pitchers that weren't as talkative as they normally were uh you had L- Lindor McNe- Mcneil thinks he's getting a car over some some passing comment that Lindor we made. don't know though if he really
1: cares about that you know what i mean like may- maybe he does but we have no evidence
2: that like he, he actually cared about, cares about it about- he, br- he cared about it because he brought it up he brought <laughs> it he put it on record you yeah, think about that the people that think about of- did people come to McNeil and say, hey, by the way, uh, I heard Lindor say something to you about a car that you're getting. And McNeil brought it up to everybody. He put it on record. He put it out there. Yeah, I, I, I don't know,
1: man. I, I don't know if that's really a thing. It's, it's interesting that Lindor hasn't given it to him, but I don't know if that's caused any kind of divide in this locker room. It's and just, and, it's just, and it's my been... counter is, what was last year? Like, what, what was last year? Like they won 101 games last year, and it's a very similar locker room position player wise.
2: Last year, things bounced their way. That that's the first thing. And people were—I don't want to say healthier, but the the, the reality is—is that like, even though Degrom wasn't there, Scherzer was there for a majority of the time. You had those those swing guys. Bassett was a mainstay. You know, even Tywin Walker was a mainstay. You didn't have two pitchers that basically were missed the first half of the season in um in Quintana and and Verlander who were like they're supposed to be there. There was I, listen, that's not true because DeGrom wasn't there. But it just felt like the injuries helped nudge this team into chaos.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that, that that's why I think the team sucked. Like be, you nailed it. Verlander and Quintana making their starts in April and May and June or in Verlander's case April Changes a lot to me. Changes a lot. But I I think we'll hear more as the weeks go on. Um, I I don't want to make changes based on innuendo or rumors or feelings. You know what I mean? Like, you have to make changes to build the best roster possible. Now, it's important for David Stearns to get a temperature of that room, and maybe that means changing the manager. Because if there was that big of a disconnect in this locker room, if that's how you feel and it's the truth, then the manager's got to go. Then the manager is a big part of that. But I don't want to trade or get rid of good players based on that. I want to build the best team possible. And the Mets have an avenue to getting a lot better, but they've got to be smart in building this roster during the offseason.
2: Can I just put a, a, a bow on the whole Philly series? Because you just said – you just nailed it right there. You want to make this team better. Mm. And this Mets team is not awful as far as – well. I think there's a good core to it. I think the young kids are good. But just imagine that the Mets hit on some of the free agents they were trying to go to over the past few years. Guys like JT Ramuto. Guys like Nick Castellanos. Guys like – I mean Trey Turner was really – but the Phillies got them all and they have a decent squad. Like that the Phillies are turning into the team that the Mets wanted. I mean, not yeah, saying that well, Bryce Harper not saying Bryce Harper was somebody that we were locked in on. Well, the, had a-
1: the the biggest free agent that the Phillies signed that the Mets didn't, that I think makes a bigger difference than any of the guys you just named. Besides Zach. Bryce, you didn't mention obviously Bryce. Obviously, is a great player is Zach Wheeler. Yeah. Zach Wheeler would have made the biggest difference. You know, even this year, Zach Wheeler doesn't have Cy Young numbers. But the guy, for the most part, goes out and makes his starts. And that's one of the most valuable traits you can have in Major League Baseball. I did read this piece of good news, if you want to call this good news. The Mets called up Anthony Kay before Sunday's game. Obviously, Anthony Kay is a guy who was in the Mets organization for a while. They drafted him. He didn't sign. They drafted him again. He did sign. He was traded for Marcus Stroman. He was DFA'd a bunch of times. Mets claimed him about a week and a half ago. And I saw this in Newsday, and I thought this was a positive sign of where the Mets are going. Anthony Kay and talking about his return to the Mets, I can already see the insane improvements that they've made over the last four years. And I've only been here for a week. I'm very excited to see what they have up here in the majors and see what they can do for me. Now, specifically, what does he mean? It's little things, the food, the nutrition side, the strength coaches, and everything like that you can tell they've made so many steps forward toward trying to make everything better here. So it's a small thing, but it's cool to hear a player who would have that perspective of, I was here, I'm gone, I'm back again, noticing such a big difference. Right, let's get to Mauricio, because I think this one's going to be fascinating in terms of what they do with him next year. Now, obviously, option, there's many options. One is they could trade him. Tell me the trade. Then we could tell you if we like it or not. Obviously, I think we're excited about Ronnie Mauricio. But as the million dollar man Ted DiBiase once said, everybody's got a price. So I'm sure there's a David Stearns trade where we'd say, ah, it sucks. Mauricio's gone. But yay, we've got blank. The other option is Billy Epler still in charge and they're sending Ronnie Mauricio to AAA. I don't think that's the case. In the small sample size that Ronnie's had at the major league level, he's not only been impressive, but he had a great year at AAA, he had a great year at winter ball. He's done everything the Mets have asked him to do. They need his bat in the lineup next year. A switch hitter with power from both sides, he needs to play. So it leads to the question of, okay, what position? Now, one of the options is, and this was an email sent to us at b at gmail.com, that think a lot of people are going to have, and it came from David. David wrote about season tickets, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on. We did that in the last podcast. But he thinks, I think Mauricio can replace McNeil as the everyday utility guy. And he's also a switch hitter, which is more of an advantage. What do you think? Here's what I think. I think Jeff McNeil is special. The ability to play right field and be great at it the ability to play left field and be really good at it, the ability to play second base and be really good at it, the ability to have no idea where you're going to be position-wise and have it not really affect you is an amazing trait. I don't know if a young player like Ronnie Mauricio could handle that. that and I don't know, maybe he can. I've seen young guys do it. Miguel Cabrera very early in his career – bounced around multiple positions before he finally settled on third base and then first base. But with a guy as young as Mauricio, in theory, David's right. Like in theory, wouldn't that be ideal? Third base, second base, left field, DH, yay. He plays every day. It's a different position every day. I don't know if that works more times than not. Jeff McNeil has spoiled us. It's a part of why McNeil's value is probably greater than then we give it credit for it. So when we talk about the locker room, if you say, well, just trade Jeff McNeil, locker room will be fine. You got to remember the value he brings by that ability. The ability to play second base at a high level, left field, right field. Like Depending on what's happening around him, health, young players coming up, free agents. Jeff McNeil could be an everyday player at one of three different positions, maybe four, if you stuck him at third base. I think that Mauricio is going to be better off with a position. I I do. As much as it would be awesome for him to be a super utility guy, I think he's going to be better off at a position. So far, it is a small sample size, and I am stereotyping based on his body. I'm stereotyping. Based on his height, he just feels like a third baseman. That, that's how I feel. Now, has he been good at second base? Yes, he has. Can he play second base? Probably. But do you not get that sense that when you look at him, he feels long-term, because of his size, more of a third baseman than a second baseman?
2: Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's why shortstop makes so much sense for him, too, is because I feel like nowadays a lot of these shortstops are, are big. But it, 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 And the second base is, is is more of like a, I think of Jeff McNeil, who's a little skinnier, smaller guy, Dan Ugly. Even like a thick guy like that who played second base. But that's it. Like, you're never going to get like these tall towers playing second base. You have them more in the corners.
1: Yeah. And I'd love if he could play the outfield because I think, you know, we haven't seen him play the outfield. But when you look at the Mets' potential depth chart next year, there's a lot of questions in the outfield. Like is DJ Stewart an everyday player? Can Starling Marte come back and be, you know, 80% of what he was two years ago? And because of those questions, it makes you say, okay, it'd be great if one of those guys could play the outfield. And that could be the future for a guy like Brett Beatty. Because naturally, and Gary Cohen wondered about this on the Sunday broadcast with Ron Darling, which is if Mauricio's the third baseman, if that's the position you select for him, what about Vientos? What about Beatty? I know you mentioned at the top of the pod, well, trade Brett Beatty. What is his value? Like during the offseason last year, there were rumblings of the Marlins' interest, and there were rumblings of a Brett Beatty-Pablo Lopez deal. Today, you'd make that trade. Today, you'd say, yeah, I get a middle-of-the-rotation starting pitcher who makes his starts every five days, done. But during the offseason, we didn't want to make that trade. You know that. You didn't want to make that trade. So is this year enough for you to accept
2: the lesser value of what Brett Beatty has? Well, here's the thing, though, right? Like if you're uh, – we just made a trade for, for a bunch of prospects. And a lot of these guys are similar positions. That not everyone's moving to the outfield. Not everyone can move to the outfield. Guys like Vientos and Beatty, I'm sorry, they have more of a short leash for me because I want – if. I have to have a pick, a quicker trigger finger. As far as when do we cut ties with these guys to see what the younger kids have? I I'm I'm more for getting the Acuna Acunas to come up sooner or later. The the the, the young kids that they just traded for, see if they can come up sooner and not have Beatty and Vientos block them for the next three or four years. And be like, wow, they they sucked. We, we they kind of were who they who we thought they were. This is a. Really long-term
1: hypothetical, because I'm sure during the offseason we'll have 100 different options for these positions. But right now, middle of September, late September, if I told you opening day 2024, Ronnie Mauricio is the third baseman, Jeff McNeil is the second baseman, Pete stole here, Lindor is a shortstop, and I told you, DH, the plan is a platoon of Brett Beatty and Mark Vientos.
2: What would you say? Uh is Vogel back on the team, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> first question. Um I I'm not thrilled. I'm not I'm not thrilled because again, you have two guys that haven't proven anything yet. And where if there's someone in free agency or trade that can be that everyday guy and you don't have to worry about, well, let's get this guy versus the lefties, this guy versus right righties. I I just want to just put somebody in there who can play every day.
1: I would be willing to take the gamble on Beatty, Vientos, and any of the younger players that come up next year, though. I'm not sure if Jet Williams is on the Major League roster next year, or Luis Angel Acuna is on the Major League roster at some point next year. Uh, I don't know if those guys get here. I'd be more willing to risk youth in the lineup and just use all my money and assets to improve this rotation and improve this bullpen, because I think it's so far and away the priority. But we'll have a lot of time to do this during the offseason. Uh, final week of the season has arrived. They've got six games at City Field. The Marlins Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. The Phillies Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, I guess it's just going to be final turnaround with the rotation. Luke Casey on Tuesday. Kodai Senga's final start on Wednesday. David Peterson on Thursday. Tyler McGill on Friday. Quintana on Saturday. And Jose Budo on Sunday. I did hear. From the broadcast, that Daniel Murphy is going to throw out the first pitch on Friday night. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited to go to the city field, go to the city field, to go to city field a few more times because, listen, man, once it's over, it's over. It's a very long offseason October, November, December, January, February, most of March. That's half a year of not smelling the grass. And the hot dogs and the popcorn and the dog manure from the, when the puppies come on Fridays, <laughs> whenever the hell they come, bark
2: in the park. I'm going to miss that crap.
1: since it's our hey, final
2: chance to get out the city field. Have you told, because like Anthony, my youngest, just realized I told him, I was like, listen, you know. This is the final week for baseball. Like, it's gone. It's like forever. like, no, not forever, but, you know, not until (laughs) baseball season starts up again. He doesn't really – this is the first, like, real season he's been locked in on. By the way, both teams – he's a Yankee fan. They didn't make the playoffs either. (laughs) It's not going to be a good sign for future reference. But um, that being said, though, it it is. It's an everyday thing, and he hasn't accepted it yet. Does Jet understand the fact that there is a finality right now?
1: Yes, he's already moved on to who are we rooting for in the playoffs? How are we (laughs)
2: handling that?
1: And I said you have to listen to the Rico. We're gonna do a whole Rico about our rooting interests and who we should root for and root against. So <laughs> that's only a week away, by the way. I mean, we're we're basically here. Final week of the year. We only have two more Rico's that recap a series. And then we'll recap the season, look at the offseason, and do all sorts of fun stuff. You can email the pod anytime, the Rico at gmail.com, the Rico at gmail.com. By the way, standings wise, the Mets now have I think it's the seventh worst record in Major League Baseball. Remember, they have to be in the bottom six to not have their draft pick go back 10 slots. But even if they're in the bottom six or even if they're not, it doesn't matter because there's a lottery. So they could jump the number one or they could fall back. So, yeah, very, very confusing. Feels like the NBA all over again. But we appreciate you listening and downloading. I'll be on the air at two o'clock with Tiki, Pete and the middays with BT and Sal. Thank you very much for listening to another edition of Rico Bronya.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya Podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.